You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And I know it's a little bit belated, Neil, uh, but Happy New Year. Happy New Decade. If you believe decades, there's some complexity about zero counting, depending on whether you're a Fortran or C, I don't know. Uh, yes. Happy New Year and Happy New Decade. Yeah, absolutely. And For I, Fortran or C, whichever uh, it is. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, you know, however you count it, it's a nice it's a nice artificially imposed time to think about what this last unit of time has meant and what this next unit of time might hold. So I, I would love to do the traditional navel-gazing new period of time kickoff that journalists love to do, which is thinking about what we might see in this next unit of time, in this next decade. And, and, you know, as informed by what we've seen in this last decade, and I think that we've seen this kind of reflection right now is so important because I think we have seen humongous change, not only in the, the research and what has been technically accomplished, but the way that the practitioner community works and the implications of that for things going forward. So what do you think, Neil, if you had to choose one sort of hallmark of what you think signals what we can see in the future around how work gets done? I think there's lots of like lots of crystal ball gazing about what kind of work is going to get done. And like, that's very exciting. But I I think that how that work is going to get done and how we talk about how that work gets done is going to have a huge impact on what problems get picked up and solved. Yeah. So it is appropriate that we choose an arbitrary number based on the number of fingers we have on each hand uh, for a period of reflection. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because the universe makes sense with tens, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's been an amazing decade in terms of adoption of machine learning techniques. That's absolutely clear. And I guess if I look back to 2010, I don't think I would have forecast at all that we would be where we are now. I can't remember who who says it that that things happen slower than you expect in a period of years, but in a period of decades they they seem faster. There's some quote like that. Anyway, that seems to apply. Here's here's something that I was reading over the holidays, which is the printing press was being developed in the 1440s in Mainz in Germany by Gutenberg. And I think that he prints his first Bible in 1455. By 1520, Martin Luther is banging things on church doors saying he doesn't like the Pope anymore. And you've got a sort of the beginning of the reformation of the church, which I just find extremely interesting when you compare 1940s when people are sort of building computers in various parts in the world and first digital technology to 2020, it's the same sort of 70, 80 year period. And first of all, it makes me think, wow, actually things happen pretty fast with the printing press. And wow, things have in some sense happened pretty slowly with computers. But one of the things that 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 happened with I think the printing press at some point was initially it was a tool that was used by churches to print indulgences and Bibles and things like that and then it was used for dissent and I guess one of the things we're we're going to we've seen in communication is is the increase in social media and it being used in, in that so really radically changing the way we're having conversations not necessarily. All to the good. I, I think probably one would say the same thing about the printing press, but but it takes a while to assimilate how to do these things. I think, for example, um, you know, you can see changes in the way we're doing politics, and that I think is not. It's not. I don't think when people are becoming popular, major politicians are becoming popular on social media platforms. I don't think it's because they are sort of Svengali geniuses that know how to conduct a population. I just think that there's a coincidence between that politician's personality and way of communicating and things that work well on these platforms. And that's that's kind of interesting. And I think, um, yeah, so there's some of that going on. And I, I think we're, I hope we're going to get, we need to be able to use these tools to do better communication in science as well, which I think is a really interesting challenge. Yeah, and I think that we've we've started to see that, right? I don't I don't know when maybe you know this. I don't know when archive opened up, but like I certainly became aware of it um and its impact within the last decade. And then I think that we've seen so so that to me sort of took the the model of 
or at least the timeline of publication of academic papers, especially for this community, which seems to rely so heavily on archive to communicate this information, that changed it radically. But also the journal structure in machine learning, at least, has never been what a traditional journal structure would be like. It sort of relied, at least from my point of view, relied more heavily on the main the main flagship conferences. But now even those main flagship conferences, we're seeing things like people putting their posters online, heavy use of QR codes in posters to like communicate back to the paper. And then also this idea that I think NeurIPS has taken up um, that seemed to be uh, growing in popularity. We saw the meetups last year, the idea around decentralization of these larger points. And I think that that really rolls in neatly and nicely to your idea around like the printing press was a tool for the well-established to communicate. And then it became as the idea, as the technology became democratized, it became used to express a wider variety, including dissenting opinions. And so I wonder if as we see not only the communication, but the community, the practitioner community become decentralized and reach a wider population and include a larger number of voices, if we're not going to see a larger variety of research questions getting chosen, particularly with response to the on-the-ground questions that people are facing geographically being wider. I don't know. Does that make sense? What do you think? There's so many things going on. I guess when people look back at this period, you suspect that they might just say, oh, and then all hell broke loose. Um, because actually there's something else that went on when the printing press was developed. At a similar time, the Ottomans, I think under Mehmet II, sacked Constantinople. And that actually caused uh, a large number of written works to leave Constantinople, things that had not been known in, say, Western Europe. So sorry, very European perspective here. And that sort of gave material for the printing press to work on. And one of the things that's going on when you talk about ideas and dissemination of ideas is also the ideas that came out. So people then started retranslating the Bible. And But yeah, in, in this case, it, it's very complex because when you mention archive, I see that as an odd combination of the old and the new. Because genuinely, if I speak to most people, they're finding sort of clarification blog posts or software, perhaps the most useful thing in driving through their ideas. But when it comes to their citations, they will cite archive papers, but not those blog posts or very often not the software. Despite the archive papers not having gone through a sort of a more formal peer review process, I think poor old Dom, Tom Dietrich has to sort of check many of them to make sure they're on subject. Great service to the community. Uh, but the, they haven't gone through a sort of formal peer review, yet somehow they, they're, they're this weird artifact, which is more tracing back to the notion of what a written piece of work is and how it should appear as a paper, which in some sense is also a relatively modern notion, only 200 years old. But it's so important. It's interesting that while you're right, there's this disruption going on. There's also a massive conservatism in the way we expect to do things. It's not like, let's revisit everything we think about scientific communication and conferences and everything else. Because in some sense, I would say many of our conferences have become undermined by the status we place on getting a paper in that conference. So rather than the venue for conferring, they have become a status symbol for getting your tenure, or if students are in a very difficult position because I think that they feel PhD students, they feel that unless they have a few NeurIPS papers or ICML papers or UAI or AI stats papers, that they, ICLR, sorry, now, now you have to start worrying which conferences have I missed and going to offend and other really good conferences that I've forgotten to mention, they feel the pressure to produce these papers because they feel that's probably the only mark of success. That came up at the new NML meeting, uh, which, which was I thought was a, a great innovation this year at Europe's. There was a meeting for people that were new to machine learning, wanted to understand about the community, a lot of questions around this. And... I think that there's there's a weird, what I'm slightly worried about is the misalignment between those that are contributing to understanding and those that are being credited for that contribution. It, it almost seems like once you've got this idea that someone's explained clearly in a blog post, you, you, you know, the archetype is to cite this paper that you've never really read, don't really understand. Now, of course, the idea may be in that paper and so on and so forth, but it's really such a sophisticated ecosystem of communication now. And I think that 
that that's opening up challenges, which you see reflected when people talk about reviewing. I, I see it again, and you see it almost every day. Oh, it's so unfair that people do a bad job on reviews, yet submit a lot of papers. I don't know to what extent that's a new phenomenon. That's always been true, or to what extent it's just because the, the rate at which things are expanding or the fact that people prepare to complain about it on Twitter. The irony is kind of almost when you, particularly that complaint, it's like the community complaining about itself. It's like all the people involved are, it's, so it's, it's something to do with like human behavior we're complaining about in some sense. We're sort of saying, isn't it bad that humans don't do a good job when they don't think it's got direct benefit? Or something like that. Right. So what do you think it's going to take? I mean, if we are passing our ideas around in the ways using the channels that are sort of easier to access and a little more convivial, like blog posts and Twitter and things like that, but then we're still like credentializing things through this system that more closely resembles the older system, which is having a written in like paper, these ideas being written in simply a different format, being written in like an, an, uh, the format of an academic journal. What do you think it's going to take for... Ironically, written as if they're going to be printed, even though the whole point is we don't print them anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oddly. So the, the printing press somehow has more it. Sorry, Kai, I interrupted you. Carry on. No, no, not at all. Yeah. Uh, so, so do you think we're going to see a... What is it going to take to move the the credentializing of the idea to that actually idea and away from this like sort of shell that now represents acceptance of that idea, which is something that looks kind of like, I mean, and an archive paper is is also sort of divorced from this like golden nugget or golden stamp or seal of approval. That's the word that I want. The seal of approval from presenting it at a uh, at a conference. This is a roundabout way of asking the question of what is it going to take for the community to actually transfer the value, the stamps of value to the way that we actually exchange valuable ideas, which seems to be through rapid and clear communication away from this system of like, did you present it at NeurIPS or ICML or at one of the many other wonderful conferences? How do we get the system to reflect the reality of how information is being exchanged? I always find it funny how poor as a community we are applying our own lessons about intelligence and information propagation that is our day job to our own understanding of our processes. Like, so Karina and I did the Europe's experiment a number of years ago. And, and to me, I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. The, the sort of headline too long didn't read outcome was that, you know, I think we had a very good process for the papers, um, but we had, we ran independent committees and the consistency of accepts headline figure is that uh, if we'd rerun the conference independently, only 50% of the same papers would have appeared. And people were quite surprised by that. I, I wasn't actually that surprised because when you think about it, and I find it surprising that people are surprised <laughs> because you're asking three people for a subjective opinion. If you look at almost all reviewing instructions, they are asking for subjective opinions about things like impact or novelty or you know some form of interest to the community uh, about a paper. And we know from statistics that even if you were looking for an objective thing, even if there was an, a, a noisy objective thing under this thing, you know, three questions, three people would not be enough to get a reliable statistic. So in some sense, it's surprising with, with that consistent. So I found that initially surprised because the, the reaction of everyone was for a few years, let's try and fix it. Let's have more reviewers. Let's do this. Let's, let's improve consistency. I almost think that if you, if you have got a completely consistent system, you, you potentially are in danger because you've found some way. Here's one way to have a sort of consistent system is let's just only publish papers by Neil Lawrence. You know, once we've got that, then that's certainly consistent. Is it fair? Consistency is not fairness, right? In fact, you need it, the inconsistency is because you can't get an absolutely correct decision. Showing there's inconsistency actually, I would argue, potentially shows that an inconsistent system is likely to be better than a consistently unfair one. Now, okay, let's take that to some of these questions around because people want the sort of credit to be allocated. But the credit assignment problem in reinforcement learning is is known to be NP hard. You know, you know, you can't do that. You can't actually. It's not a trivial process of saying, you know, this is the whole point in like why is reinforcement learning hard? We don't know which of these steps along going towards a goal where the outcome is some useful idea is how we should distribute credit amongst them. And it, it's not like money works. You know, money is the best system we apparently have at the moment for 
economic benefit. It's not like it works in a fair way. People exploit it. So the idea that we can suddenly magic into place some universally fair credit allocation system is bizarre. And it reminds me, and I think that one of the people's odd and incorrect senses is, oh, if we just measure things more, we'll be all right. And that's just not true. If you measure things more, you just, okay, so this is happening, interestingly, important segue into English Premier League soccer at the moment. So they've got a lot, they've got video assistant referees now, which have actually quite worked quite well, I think, in rugby, but in soccer, it's causing a total mess. Because what's really interesting about it is decisions that people thought were clean decisions, like is someone offside or not? Or should that be a penalty or not? Did it hit someone's hand? There's a lot of judgment embedded in the decision. And measuring it more doesn't give you less controversy. It gives you more controversy because everyone starts seeing the inconsistency. So it's like the sort of decisions people get upset about is when Sheffield United player John Lundstrom has his big toe offside and his goal against Tottenham Hotspur is disallowed. That's the sort of thing people get upset about. Not that I'm being specific. Because in, in theory, there's some like defined sort of thing, well, what offside means. You know, the offside is whether you're ahead of another player. But in practice, it doesn't matter if your arm's offside. But then what's the end of your arm is your armpit. And as you go finer and finer into this measurement, you know, it just get it just ends up in more and more stupid arguments. And like you'd just be happier almost with like, oh, it would have been better if we didn't watch the video and then decide, you know, in the past we could all watch the video and call the referee an idiot. Now we watch the video. And then we see the details of decision-making and we're even angrier, right? And same with penalty decisions. I think there's something similar. As we try and measure more, we, we get this sense in which, oh, now we should be able to tell who really did it. No, because the sort of, I mean, it's more complex in this case because the credit assignment problem is difficult in, in the base case. But what we do know is people are getting much more immediate rewards for certain behaviors. And so they will naturally gravitate to those behaviors. And one of those things is getting papers published at, say, the big conferences. But it is all undermining perhaps the purpose of the conference and everything else and, and, and overloads the system. It's extremely difficult to solve. I actually think it will shake out. And here's here's my projection for how it's going to shake out. I think we've hit, I, I did say last year we might see a collapse. I don't, I don't think we've seen a collapse, but I do think we've seen a turning point. I think we saw last year that follow-up rounds of funding for some of these AI startups being contingent on whether they were bringing in revenue. I think that they were lower than people were wanting. I would say on average, if you tell me someone got a follow-up round last year, I'm reckoning it was half of what they hoped for. Right. And that's because funders look at these things. Initially, they're all like, oh, wow, yeah, 30 million, you're going to be the next deep mind. But then as a follow up, they're like, okay, so you need more money. What's your current revenue? You know, they're a little bit more skeptical. I think we're seeing a turning point in terms of companies just employing PhD machine learning researchers believing that they're going to come and do magic. I think major companies, certainly the ones who have been employing, have now some experience of what people can and can't do. And they're getting much more to what the crux of the problem is, which isn't having someone that can, at a moment's notice, start creating a Neuritz paper, which has a good chance of being accepted. You know, that isn't actually necessarily what society needs, believe it or not. So I think that there's, there's probably some realization, and I'm hopeful it's a sort of like, a, a sort of gradual realization that it's not going to lead to some collapse. You can get triggers that cause collapses that, where expectations start matching delivery. And my anticipation is that we'll partially start steering away from the core, I'm developing a new algorithm machine learning community as people start realizing that actually there's there's a lot of problems with the algorithms we've already developed. And even I think work that I really admire, things like uh, in the fairness space, and in the fairness space, I think that that's got to become connected to what's going on inside companies. I think it's rare. I don't think there are examples of someone's deployed an algorithm in the fairness space. And I think we've got some really interesting answers to some early questions, but I don't think we're really answering the, how do I deploy a fair system? How does this work practically? so on and so forth. So that's got to shift a little bit more towards the industrial side. And I don't think that the way that's going to happen is by, you know, the people coming into Europe and getting it all out there. So I think that's going to diffuse. I think that what we'll see as well is if you go back, to, my analogy is always the cybernetics community, which is really our community. It's the it's the great grandparent of what we're doing or the grandparent of what we're doing. It had this amazing success, which was this domain of uh, control, what we call classical control, optimal control, 
feedback control, these sort of things that just became a domain of uh, electrical engineering. And what you see if you look at these departments that may have started out a cybernetics department, they became control theory departments. And if you read like early works on cybernetics, there's this sort of rawness and this, oh, actually we care about animal learning to them. But then once they develop this technique that works, people sort of say, listen, we're not putting animal learning in your jet fighter, but we have got this rigorous mathematical framework called control theory. So, you know, we should put that in your jet fighter and don't listen to those cranks that talk about animal learning. They, they, they probably use their Brit British Airways captain voice to do it. <laughs> Just very soothing, very authoritative, but you, all, you will sit down in your seat and you will put on your seatbelt. Ladies and gentlemen, we will be using linear feedback control under a PID controller for the next 12 hours. <laughs> I will be the setting the gain of the controller to approximately 1.2 and proving stability through, I can't remember the name of the plot. Anyway, um, that, I, I think something similar to that is quite likely to happen because despite whatever, you know, I'll complain about it like a grumpy old man, which I am now, but I think you can't really fight these sort of tidal forces of a new community is interested in a certain thing. They're interested in delivering success around that thing and evolving that thing and developing that sort of thing. So even if you think you've got some sort of set of techniques which people are ignoring and they're really important, if they are being ignored, it may not matter. In the past, what was interesting is the way the community... So I guess this is the key question. In the past, the community was able to move on from successful techniques and study something else. And that happened you know, with sort of going neural networks to kernel machines. And that's happened going kernel machines back to neural networks or from probabilistic graphical models. There's an interesting question about whether that happens again or whether the momentum of this core community is just too large. And I think it's achieved escape velocity in that sense, that the community is that, you know, it's escaped the gravitational attraction of a, a, a the more diverse sort of set of interests uh, that used to sort of spin off in different directions in the past. But I may be wrong on that. I could absolutely be wrong. That's a fascinating idea, though. Do you think do you, it's sort of like is there, uh, so if winter comes when um, funding funding sort of falls out of the bottom because and people are not interested in the results that the reality of the research can bring, maybe summer is just as bad because people get stuck on this one result that's like, doing very well and then you can't then you don't have enough interest to diversify and things sort of don't move on and you become stark in like a like a like a vortex <laughs> i don't know i think something like that happens i think that um and i was i was rather clumsy about this on twitter the other week so about trying to get this point across and i was rather i i was rude to uh, a, a young researcher called carlos which i should apologize for but the point i was trying to get across is it's very difficult to have such a rapidly expanding community absorb the diversity and subtlety of so many ideas. In fact, I would even say back in 2000, I was only starting to feel happy by 2010 that a large segment of the community were beginning to have a more sophisticated understanding of, say, Bayesian ideas. And of course, when uh, there's a lot of new people arriving. They don't have the time to, you know, that, that understanding took a while to come about and it's hard to sort of summarize in a pithy way. And I think even the people working on those ideas, you get this sort of slight regression, which is inevitable and you shouldn't really, I mean, I will complain about it, but I know that it's pointless complaining about it. You get this regression into a more cartoon view of some of these ideas. And, and the follow-up consequence of that is the people who are interested in those ideas will start moving on to different subfields. And I've seen that with many of the people I admire most. Like, it's not the right place necessarily to do research at the interfaces of, say, cognitive science and machine learning in Europe anymore. It used to be a really good place to do that. And, and the people that do that, you know, they're in a very small minority. So I did catch up with Tom Griffiths this year in Europe, but so only because he emailed me beforehand and we arranged to go out for a coffee and then we were able to catch up over these different things. And, you know, the ideas Tom Griffiths has is, I mean, he's, he's one of the co-authors of Algorithm to Libsby, which we mentioned. But, but just his thinking around research, I just find enormously stimulating. I did, I did see Josh Tenenbaum because we happened to be invited to the same evening event. But I didn't get so long to talk to him. And 
I, I think part of, then we're trying to have some of these conversations maybe at the level of Twitter. So I think that the famous one was the Gary Marcus, Joshua Bengio debate. I, I didn't really follow it. I, I, I like Gary. I like Joshua. I didn't see anything in the debate that I found sophisticated or interesting. It, it felt more like WWF wrestling entertainment. And and the end, you know, like sort of like I'll say that you guys don't understand it. And and it, you know, and I think I then have participated in such a debate on on Twitter that isn't. And I don't think that that's you know that's not going to be that's not that's not conducive to a field with the sort of wide diversity of thinking. So the thing you said before is okay, this lies a diversity of opinions to come forward, and I think it kind of does. And then the next stage is that solidifies into well. A perhaps more radical church in some sense. I mean, what what happens to the Reformation is initially it's like, well, it's you take back power, you know, to yourself. You get to read the Bible yourself. But then the follow up thing is is that itself. This is is certainly in in the United Kingdom. There's this very interesting process of it's a matter of convenience for Henry VIII to separate to get a divorce. But then you get this: uh, the Protestants become the state church and then there's still people who are dissenting against that so they're pushed out and some of them of course go to the united states so there's this sort of weird follow-up stage where yes it does allow this diversity of opinions but then i think i don't think it allows subtlety of opinion and maybe but i would totally admit that maybe that's you know some metropolitan elite idea or some or, or potentially some naive, what's the right word? Well, I think there's definitely opportunity as like the volume, as the number of interlocutors rises, the volume also has to rise. And so the opportunity for nuance gets lost. I think that that's sort of how things go often. I think that's right. It's good. It feels like a therapy session for me. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think that's right. And I think to a large extent, that's okay. One shouldn't worry about it. And I, I, do, I have this mixed thing in myself. I partially tell myself, don't worry about it. This is actually really amazing, which it totally is, right? Like, let's just get it straight. It's just amazing. And then this other part has said, oh, well, you know, but we've lost this or we've lost that. And I think that that's okay. I think, I think it's a natural sort of this escape velocity idea is like the, the next thought is, well, do I want to stay on that ship? And the part answer is, Yes, as long as it's within touching distance of, you know, what I consider my home planet, you know, and and that I can feel I can depart at the necessary time, because because that ship's going some interesting place, right? It's 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 going to some amazing destination, which isn't necessarily the destination that, that many academics are interested in, but actually it's an interesting destination for society. I suppose there's also, why do you stay on the ship? Because early on, you can steer that ship to avoid, you know, if 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 it's true that there is any value to some of this thinking, which there is some, there's certainly the energy, the energy of the new thinking is what's really achieving that escape velocity. And I'm obviously the sort of grumpy older type and the energy, you know, if we had a younger, they would be saying, yes, but look, think of all this cool stuff and you people running around debating the philosophy of what you're doing, idiots, you know, quite right. But there's an opportunity to provide a little bit of steerage while it's going on its way. So I suspect that's what's going to happen partially. I think there's a lot of efforts within the Europe's community to hold things together and certainly on the board but there's also it's interesting that the retentions between what it actually necessarily means what is the conference for what does it do and to some sense i personally believe that should be largely self-steering it can certainly be there should be some steering to avoid the rocks or the icebergs but but that's the localized steering you you need to allow the community to steer it in terms of final destination yeah absolutely well, we'll, you know, we'll keep talking about it. You know, Neil, it's my favorite thing to talk with you about talking about talking about talking about machine learning. Talking about machine learning, printing. I, I'm going to return to pamphleteering. That's my new word. I, 
I found a book in the college library, which is just a book of pamphlets. And I haven't looked at it yet because it said, do not touch. And I'm not sure if I'm allowed to touch it, but I'm thinking, I so want to read what's in that book. And it's going to sort of open it up. Page one, all Bayesians are idiots. Here's why. You know, it's just going to be a series of like tweets from the 16th century. That's what it is. That's what it is. Pamphlets are tweets for uh, the 16th century. That's what it is. People who think Bayesians are idiots are ignorant. That's my follow-up pamphlet. You know, it's it's happened before. That's the thing. I take a lot of uh, faith from you looking at, oh, right, this has happened before. Okay, this isn't you. Okay. Nice, nice. And when you hand someone a pamphlet directly, is that a DM? But then when you like scatter them across a town square, is that like publicly tweeting? You've given me an idea. Next meeting, I'm going to be, I'm going to be on the corner with my stand of return to the true faith, handing out pamphlets. (laughs) Pamphleteering. I love it. Perfect. This is not the true way of machine learning. Come back to it. (laughs) Well, we'll have links to all of Neil's new pamphlet series, as well as our prognostications on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. Our guest this week on Talking Machines is Margot Gerritsen. She's a professor of energy resources engineering at Stanford University and also one of the co-founders of Women in Data Science. When I got a chance to talk with her, I asked her the first question that we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I got where I am, I think, as a series of opportunities and serendipities in my life. It wasn't planned at all. If you told me when I was, uh, say, the age of my son or my students now, so in my, uh, my early 20s, at university and you'd said, you know, one day you'll be a professor at Stanford University in California, probably would have said you're out of your mind and where is Stanford? I've never heard of the place. (laughs) So, no, I really, um, I think I've been extremely lucky in my life. I've uh, had opportunities. So I was studying uh, mathematics at uh, Delft University, which is a uh, sort of the Dutch MIT, if you like. And I've always wanted to be overseas. Uh, Holland, where I'm from, is gray and dark in the winter and it's kind of crowded and I always felt oh wouldn't it be great to live in sunnier and and maybe slightly hillier places so <laughs> so I got the opportunity after my uh, my master's degree to move to the United States and spend a year in Colorado and I was teaching at university there and I loved it so much I'd done some teaching at high school uh, and middle school and uh, I liked that too but teaching at university I thought was brilliant and so I realized then I really need to get a PhD got connected to Stanford and to my big surprise was accepted and then I found out where Stanford was and spent five years here in computer science and computational mathematics and uh, then got the opportunity to move to New Zealand was there for five years and then all of a sudden there was this job opening back at Stanford again and people said hey would you like to apply and I thought oh why not to my big surprise I got the job offer there at Stanford and it was 20 years ago and I came back so it's been just a series of opportunities, honestly. Fantastic. It sounds like such an amazing journey. And now at Stanford, your professorship sits in the Department of Energy Resources and Engineering. Is that correct? Energy Resources Engineering. Yes. So we look at uh, where energy sources are found, how to extract energy from those sources, and also more and more about what happens to that energy downstream. You know, so after you've produced it, what happens in the consumption side and what are unintended consequences of uh, of this energy use and I have to admit uh, that for a long time I was working on oil and gas problems you know usually helping to mitigate uh, negative environmental impacts of oil and gas I've also done renewable energy processes and you know my big love really is in simulation of processes any type of process I've all been fascinated by things that flow so I've done lots of fluid dynamics and by training, I'm really a mathematician, and so I've always had a love for anything mathematics, linear algebra, <laughs> particularly. So I teach courses in this area, and you know, about ten years ago, I started uh, as director of an institute in computational mathematics on campus, and started really getting involved in data science because that uh, more and more students were interested in that, and so that's how I actually got into this area of data science, which in my mind is nothing but 
linear algebra and and asking really good questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to, I'd love to focus there because you have done such amazing work in this space with um, women in data science, and and you're continuing the conversation with your podcast. But tell me about how you have seen, you know, given your formal training as a mathematician, given your subject matter expertise in in these like natural processes and thinking about simulations, how have you seen the definition of what we think of as data science influence the work that we're doing and the questions that are getting asked in that area? I love that you asked that question because it's been a really interesting change over time. And if you allow me, I will just give you a long answer. <laughs> But it, it's been fascinating for me because when I started in my field and, and we were doing simulation, I would say at that time, most science and engineering was data supported. And what I mean by that is that we were building simulation tools or observational techniques really based on understanding of the physics and we would build mathematical models you know after we understood physical processes we built appropriate mathematical models and then data came in because we had to close those models so there may be coefficients that you needed and so on and then of course data would come in for validation purposes and then we would generate a lot of data so in my life i've been responsible for many many petabytes of data generated by these simulation tools and the funny thing is that at that time when we were running these large simulations we really did not have have the uh, techniques and and the hardware so not the hardware not the software not really even memory management that allowed us to actually look inside the data that we'd been creating so for example uh, i worked for a while on simulations of monterey bay which is a beautiful coastal ocean area here near uh, near stanford And we have all this data, but we've never really had the chance to look into it because it was simply too many data, it was really big data at the time to even mine it. But what happened is it's like a perfect storm. So many things got together. So first of all, people were starting to generate a lot of data with simulation. Then remote sensing and other observational systems got so much cheaper. How We went from being really excited in the early 90s about having four or six satellites in the Earth observing system to now launching 400 satellites per year. And we have like 800 satellites right now in orbit uh, observing uh, the Earth. But, you know, and then, of course, social media started, the Internet started, and there was lots of social data also created. So we, we've seen this unbelievable surge in the amount of data we actually have available to us. And at the same time, we've seen this uh, wonderful increase in computational speed of hardware and uh, reducing uh, the reduction in cost of memory, right? So it all sort of comes together. And so what I've seen is that what we used to do in science and engineering that was data uh, and the social sciences, of course, also and, and, and humanities, it was data supported. Then it became sort of data inspired because we started seeing data and thinking, wow, that's an interesting phenomenon. Who, How could we model this? And then we became really data driven. And that is the last, I would say, five years or so that we've gone crazy because we now have so much data that a lot of a lot of people in this community and everywhere are really tempted to see the data as, as everything that we need to have and know about the system in order to understand it. So we sort of go from data supported to totally data driven. And it's been fascinating and also a little scary because what you see is that the expertise of, you know, the domain expert is is uh, not taken as seriously anymore. You know, I certainly have heard a lot of people say, oh, we don't really need lots of do domain experts. We just need a really good deep learning algorithm and, and a lot of data, and we can find out everything there is to know. And of course, that's that's not true, right? So it's been, it's been fascinating. I almost feel like a bit of a grandma because I feel that I've seen all of this before, because in my my time we had this incredible change where there was democratization of simulation software just like now we have democratization of data analysis software 
And also at that time, a lot of people thought, oh, we don't need, you know, fluid dynamicists or or engineers. We only need computers. We'll just simulate it. Yeah, we just simulate it, you know. And, and here is all this free software that we can use to simulate. So who, who cares about domain experts? And of course, people learned the hard way. And I think we're going to go through a similar stage with this. What message do you wish that the people who are very excited about, oh, we could just take a, you know, give me a heavy lift deep learning algorithm and enough data and I'll be able to to build you whatever. What message do you wish they would be able to hear from your experience given the democratization of simulation software and that experience that you went through? Is there something that we should be preparing for or trying to guard against given what you've already seen the field go through? Yeah, so what I would say is that the field actually shouldn't have changed as as much, right? Because we're still we still have this one goal and it's to ask really good questions and to find very intelligent answers to those questions. And so nowadays and that the same thing that happened uh, before we have all these tools available you know i see them as huge hammers that we have and we bang on anything <laughs> inside say you know we just use a deep neural network and here we can we can see this and we can see this but there's very little attention paid like at that time to the actual question so when I look at research done or when I review papers or look at proposals, my first thing is always, where is the quest? What do you really want to answer and why? And then you start thinking about, can that answer be given through data analysis? That is a question that a lot of people don't actually think about. Then, of course, you say, well, what sort of data would we need in order to actually answer that question? So that's also something that people don't really think about. They said, well, we have all this data, so of course we're going to just use this. So you look at, you know, the richness of the data. Then you may ask yourself a question, what data should we be actually collecting so that we can answer this question? You, you think about the data that we do have, who collected that data and for what purpose, because there could be bias in that data. I hardly ever see anyone ask that question. Um, and then you start thinking, what, what tool would I need to answer this question? So the tool comes last. The tool comes after you've designed the problem, you understood what data would be essential, and then you think, okay, to answer this question with this data, what tool is appropriate? Sometimes, you know, it's just linear regression. Sometimes it's a really simple statistical method and you have a, a little MATLAB or R or Python script already in your computer and you can put it in there and you will answer. Sometimes it's a back-of-the-envelope calculation. But what I see now is that people love these sexy sounding tools and the answer to most of them is a deep neural network with lots of layers <laughs> so you know sometimes they have this tiny little nail that they want to put into something and they get this huge hammer out so that is what i would like to say is that you know what the scientific question the quest that we have has not really changed the most of the time when you try to answer a really good question for society or for a company or for earth sciences, whatever application you're interested in, you spend most of your time designing that project. You spend most of your time thinking about the question. That is that what takes me and when I consult for companies, maybe 60% of the time. And then you spend maybe 20% of your time solving it. Now, the solve part is what maybe we're accelerating, but actually the unintended consequence of these deep neural networks of machine learning is often that you realize that if you want to use them, so if you're, if you're really excited about that tool, you often need more data. So there goes your time commitment, right? Because that's expensive in time. And then you need to label the data. That's not just expensive in time, but also very tedious. So you need to get people who are willing to do this. <laughs> and then, you know, you can solve maybe fast, but you know, now maybe you already spent more time than you would have done if you hadn't used this 
data science tool. And then you spend a lot of your time, at least 20%, actually selling your story or telling your story. So the speed up we see is when you really are realistic and honest, the speed up we see is really quite minor. It's in the solution part, just like the speed up we saw when the first uh, linear algebra pack, la pack, or the first blast routines or the first open source codes from national laboratories came out for everybody to use. Everybody got excited and said, we're going to be so much faster. Well, we're not because we still spend a lot of time designing the problem. Right, exactly. So so the amazing thing may have been a sea change, but in the course of the thinking about the entirety of developing a question and designing an approach that that fits that question, it's it's actually a much it's actually a much smaller percentage of all the work that needs to be done. Yes, I think so. Absolutely. And now there are people who claim they can do things very fast. And you see this now. I mean, there is this incredible excitement. And I don't blame anybody for this. You got a beautiful big hammer. Of course, you feel that you want to be baby bam bam and, you know, smash it around a little bit. Um, that's fun. And there's a lot of people that say, I want to be the first in this field applying these techniques. And of course, there is excitement and there is all this beautiful data. But most of the time, when I look at things that are done fast, it is done relatively poorly and it's a little shallow. So very often people publish very fast and you start looking at it and you say to them, so recently I was reviewing a paper and it had a new outcome for in, a, in some medical area. And they said, we use this uh, deep neural network technique and we find this and this. And then you start as reviewer asking, well, how do you trust your results? How do you know that's okay? And then it turns out they haven't actually looked at any sensitivities. They got a result. The result seemed intuitive. And so they published. Things may seem intuitive because there's confirmation bias, right? And there's all sorts of other bias come in. People don't really look at different ways to approach a problem. So they say, well, we're looking at this deep neural network. And then, of course, my first question is, have you tried other tools? What would happen if you did something a little simpler? Does it agree? What would happen if you don't have the thousand layers in your deep neural network, but only 500? Would you get a similar result? What would happen if you sampled your data slightly differently? Or what would happen if you had a slightly higher percentage of wrongly labeled data? Would then the outcome be p totally perturbed? And there are very few people who look at that. And so for me, that means that I can't really trust that research. And, and I, don't, I can't really value that that highly. Now, there may be some really interesting things that come out. You say, wow, why would that be? And that helps people ask more questions. So I'm not saying that a lot of the stuff that's done is totally useless. Some of it, I think, is. <laughs> but even things that turn out to be false or misleading, they serve a purpose because they serve the purpose of making people think, hey, can this be right or not? And that's always good. Huh? The more questions we ask and the more insights, even misleading insights we have, <laughs> ultimately, the better it is for science. But I, I think there is a bit too much hype right now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'd love to sort of take a, a little bit of a left turn and, and talk about women in, in data science, WIDS, and the conference and the podcast and all that good stuff. Um, I think a lot of our listeners to this program are familiar with Women in Machine Learning because um, WIML, which it's one of my favorite organizations. We've had their co-founders on multiple times. But I know very little about the founding of Women in Data Science. Tell me about the organization. Where does it come from? Who started it? What are you all doing now? Oh, fantastic. Oh, this could be another long answer. But <laughs> so women in data science started and, and uh, I, I joke about this, but uh, I was one of the co-founders and, and I wanted to do this as a revenge conference. So he, here was the scenario. It was 2015, early 2015, and I was uh, directing this institute in computational math, and we had started a master's in data science. So I was known in the data science community. And a colleague of mine at Stanford asked me if I could speak at a data science conference on campus, and I couldn't make it. And a few weeks later, I saw the program announcement, and it was all male speakers, which, as you know, happens way too often. And so I connected with the, uh, the organizers and said, what happened? And they said, well, Marco, you couldn't make it. And I'm totally, totally baffled. And I said, am I the only one? 
And they, then they said, well, you know, Marco, we've really tried to find women, but we just can't find them, you know. And I thought, oh, this is crazy. And and I was having coffee, venting about this with two friends of mine. One was a, a, a former student who worked with me and was now working at Walmart Lab, Esteban. And the other one was one of my colleagues on campus, a staff member who was a director of external partners in my institute and, and a good friend. And I said, you know, we should do something about this. And Esteban and Karen said, yeah, maybe, you know, we all sort of came up with this idea of having a, a conference that was only female speakers. And uh, we said, when, when should we do it? And, and then I said, why don't we just do it immediately this year in November, six months, we can do this. And that was our first WIDS. And we organized this conference on campus. And I really wanted to live stream it because one of the things that is, was also missing at the time was not that conference didn't highlight outstanding women, but also if you searched at that time online on interviews or talks or, uh, you know, even TED talks and so on, on artificial intelligence, on machine learning or data science, you would probably find no women. And that was wrong. So I said, I want to tape all of this and live stream. And then before we knew it, we sold out in no time and uh, many, many people on the wait list. And um, we had 6,000 people joining us on the live stream. So we thought, wow, we really, we really hit a nerve here. And then we thought about scaling up. So you're probably familiar with Grace Hopper. So the very first thing that we thought, oh, we we, uh, we are going to go to Moscone Center in, in San Francisco and, and we can probably get 15,000 people to come. But it didn't make sense to me because the thing about data science and, and AI, of course, is this is global, right? You are not geologically constrained. And it's an unbelievably great field to be in in many opportunities is the modern field and it would be amazing to see people from all over the world really contributing here and so you know I started thinking and with my my then wits team with Judy and Karen amazing women I work with how can we do this and we came up with this idea of having a ambassador program where we get ambassadors in various countries or cities who run a regional event with local speakers while using, you know, for part of the event, maybe some of the live stream from Stanford. So we sort of have this home conference. We live stream and other conferences use that whenever they can and then have their own local conference so that locally people can connect. And then we would provide this connection between all these ambassadors. And now this year, we have, we're going to have our fifth WITS, and we have over 200 events around the world. And we're in, in, in around 60 countries in, in almost all continents, just not in Antarctica. We can't get this together in Antarctica. But it, it's been amazing. And, and thousands and thousands of women come to these conferences. Um, I think last year, we estimated that through conferences and the live stream, there were about 120,000 people participating and then millions, you know, ultimately see talks and so on. And so now we have so many talks that are on the web that people can see, networks that have been created, also just like women in machine learning. Huh? So we're definitely sisters and, and we help each other in that way. And we have women chapters that organize WITS. And, and and certainly we're inviting women women to our wits conferences and because we we had this all this energy uh, around the world we thought well we need to do something also during the year so we have three things we've got a datathon right that is running now and uh, we will have several hundred teams from around the world participating so that's exciting and uh, we have uh, the podcast that we, we are just starting taping our third season. And uh, then we also are building outreach programs for middle school and high school. So that's the story. And then when people say, how come you only have female speakers? I said, well, we asked John, but he couldn't make it. And, you know, and we really tried to find men, but there just aren't any. <laughs> no, you know, we're really in a bind. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so I, the the datathon sounds fantastic and it's my understanding that you guys are are using um uh, you're focusing on patient health this year for 2020. Is that right? Yeah, we always try to find something related to social good and something that's internationally attractive. 
And so uh, we looked at women empowerment through financial aid. We looked at palm oil plantations last year, which was uh, particularly attractive to to folks over in uh, in uh, tropical areas where these these palm oil plantations grow. And also Europeans were really interested in it because they import a lot of palm oil. And this year we thought health because that's universal. And so I'm really excited about that that challenge. These datathon challenges are relatively easy because we want anybody with a laptop and a little bit of knowledge with a data set that's not super big, so you don't need a big, powerful machine, right, to be able to participate. So we see it as sort of a gaggle, and then and then we'd like a lot of women, huh? So uh, the rule, the only rule is that we like teams to be at most 50% men, right? So mixed teams are fine, but we don't want all male teams in, in there, but uh, mixed teams are, are extremely welcome. Uh, but we have a lot of women and girls who participate who've never done it because they were intimidated. Because as you know, most most of Gaggle and other datathon or hackathons that you have around universities, they're male-dominated. And uh, we have a lot of first-time participants. And we see also women who've participated in our datathon uh, no longer so shy about participating in, in local activities, which is wonderful. That's fantastic. And for those who are interested in forming a team, they can find the competition on Kaggle, where most of the competitions these days are. And then the the uh, winners are going to be announced at the conference this year. Is that correct? Yeah, we always announce the winners at uh, the Central Conference. And uh, that's uh, super fun. Last year, we had uh, one of the winners was an international team. That put together somebody from Africa with somebody from uh, from Europe, and I think with two people from Europe, one in Sweden and one in Spain and one in 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 Africa, if I, if I am not mistaken. But you know, I could be wrong. But it was a global team, people that never really met each other, but connected with each other and solved this problem in such a great way. So yeah, it's exciting. You can find information about it also at our website, witsconference one word dot org, and um, and people can go there. And it's not too late to start. Fantastic. And I'd love to spend a little bit of time talking about the the distributed nature of WIDS. I mean, you you WIDS was one of the first conferences to really do this as sort of a native thing, where because of the the nature of the ideas that are being considered and the work that's being done, we're we're not bound by geolocation. And now more and more of the larger conferences, NeurIPS are are starting to think about because of their enormous size at this point, and then also the the impact uh, the, of the carbon footprint of just like trying to bring a huge amount of people into one space. Given your experience with creating a distributed conference and having it be so successful, what advice would you give to those larger conferences that are now trying to make this shift, make this next step in their evolution? To to really get uh, a distributed conference like this going, I think you need very little uh, control. So what I mean by that, you cannot really do this if you are not comfortable really delegating and trusting people locally that they will know what to do. So if you start putting in all sorts of regulations and you want to oversee uh, invited speakers and control that, and then it's incredibly difficult. So what we did is, is basically say to people after our first wits, if you liked wits and you're you would like to have a local event, just contact us. And uh, we have some agreement, so we, we we also make it super easy for them, at least we think. So we give them the WITS box, so it's sort of WITS in a box with all the logos, with the website, with the registration. We have set this all up for everybody. And we say, here you are, here is the logo, here is your uh, here are your business card, here's the website, and this is the formula. And then you let them run with it. And uh, we have found that, you know, these most of these people are incredibly excited. They will find speakers, of course. Now we've got databases of speakers, right, with, with all these people that have spoken at these regional uh, conferences around the world for the last three years. And so that makes it a little bit easier because sometimes, uh, you know, somebody who who talked at conference A is then the next year invited by conference B. But I think that's the secret to to have uh, to make sure that there is the conference in the box to allow people to control their own event uh, mostly to have some have a clear rules but that gives them enough freedom to to build something that has their own flavor. 
we have very few requirements. We just want these conferences to feature outstanding women doing outstanding work. That's it. And whether they're panels or, or, or just invited speakers or breakout sessions, it's up to them. How much they use of the live stream is up to them. When they organize it, we give them a big window, say somewhere between March and May. And then we say, well, you have to call it wits at your place. So we have, for example, have a wits at Amsterdam. We have a wits at Dubai. We've got, you know, we've got wits all over the place now. And so there is a certain way way to promote them and to, to brand them. And the people really responded well to that. And then what we do is we, we tr- provide a way for the ambassadors. So you have ownership through an ambassador program for the ambassadors to link back to each other. And uh, once a year, we invite ambassadors to come to Stanford campus if they like, just the ambassadors, and to exchange ideas with each other and uh, best practices. And that works really well. That's fantastic. And so you have you have a program to encourage those those organizers who are a little more involved to try to uh, exchange ideas and to f- to further grow this extensive network through this ambassadorship program. But but really, it sounds like. It sounds like such an amazing way to truly ensure diversity of thought, experience, and access by by allowing it to be so distributed. But clearly, you have to be open to ceding curatorial power and control over this thing. You have to be open to that experience. That's exactly right. And and I think that uh, in other cases where I've seen this tested and tried, it didn't always work so well, I think, because of that oversight. So so I think that that is a, that is a really good, uh, a really important thing to think about when you organize a conference like this. And then amazing things happen. Uh, we have uh, seen conferences spring up in, for example, Japan, where there are very few women in this field, very few, and it's really needed. So that was wonderful to see. We have seen in Africa, for example, two years ago, there was a pan-African WIDS where they said, hey, you know what? We're actually going to do a live stream for Africa. So, and it became a, a truly continental event, you know, for, for that continent. We love that. We've seen conferences in Saudi Arabia where we're, we're the first uh, or, one, or one of the first conferences where women can go to unaccompanied because there's just women, right? Uh, th- there are fabulous stories of, of um, uh, students from, from India who never have really had access to conferences like this now being able to attend a local event and then actually get excited to come to the U.S. to study. Uh, we've seen tremendous enthusiasm in uh, Latin America. So I'm after our own WITS on, on March 2nd, I'm going to three WITS events in South America and uh, to meet some of the people there. But you know, we had a WITS event not too long ago in Bolivia. The person who wanted to organize this said to us when she first started, well, I know four women data scientists in Bolivia, and I think that's that's it. But they came out of the woodwork, <laughs> and all of a sudden she realized, hey, there are actually many more, and none of them actually realized this. And so now Bolivia, there is a, a very, very good connection between uh, these women, and that's really making uh, making inroads in, in that country. In Tanzania, they really picked this up, and they are getting disconnected to other efforts that they've done with girls girls who code and, and, and such efforts at high school. Uh, very inspirational for the women there. So one of the things that's so nice about these regional events that you see in each country or city, there is a slightly different need. You know, in some places, they really still need to get the girls from high school interested in even math or, or computing. And in other places, they're more worried about retention of women in a male-dominated workforce. And these conferences, they sort of tailor their program to the to the local needs, and it's fascinating. We learn so much from each other. It sounds it sounds absolutely amazing. And I know I know that we are we are tight on time, but I'd, I'd love to end with talking a little bit about about your work specifically. I understand that a lot of your your research recently has focused on traffic congestion and emission simulations, but then also fire. Prediction is that is that right? I- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I I got fascinated in recent years by wildland fires, uh, and you can probably imagine in California this is a big thing. And with the campfire uh, in Paradise, 
just recently with with so many horrible outcomes. Um, it's fascinating. And simulating wildland fires is very uh, difficult. There's there's so much um, uh, now that that people are trying to understand about the intensity of these fires, about the 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 weather they're they're creating. So so there is a, a lot of, of of simulation to do in that area, which excites me. But when you think about mitigation, lots of stuff comes in in play. Equity, for example, because some of the mitigating policies that you maybe think of discouraging people to live in the wildland urban interface can really have uh, unintended consequences for subsets of the population. So you have to be very careful uh, with this. So we we are now running uh, in in spring quarter on campus uh, what we call a big earth hackathon. So it's a play on big data and earth sciences. And uh, this is our third big Earth hackathon. We have done one in Earth movement. We have done one in water, and now we do fire. And in fact, we should do wind, so we have Earth, wind, and fire. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but we will focus on wildland fires, and and we we challenge our students to define a project, uh, a question related to equity, or related to mitigation, or related to prediction, and contribute to that over the course of uh, of a quarter. And of course, my research interests are now moving in that area because I think uh, we'll have a lot of uh, initial work done uh, this coming quarter and then we'll take that further in the coming years. So I am very excited about that. It's A lot of people are jumping on this right now and it's one of those very multidisciplinary and so critical projects that may be accessible, right? And climate is another, of course, uh, but that's very complex, and it's a little bit harder to access this with students quickly and maybe make a, a contribution or dive into that and get hooked and understand you know, a little aspect of it. But wildland fires, uh, I think, will really appeal to people. So, yeah, that would be fun to continue in that direction. And... Um, Traffic congestion and pollution with traffic, you know, involves simulation of, of traffic flow. So anything that flows, whether it's fire or <laughs> or traffic or 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 wind or you know air or water, I I just uh, love it so much to to try to understand that a little bit better. Amazing. Margo, thank you so much for your time. This has been such a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. It was super fun. And so I look forward to having you on our podcast. <laughs> Margo Gerritsen of Stanford University. That is it for us this week on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode.